Hello, and welcome to Dwell on Truth, where we are going through the Gospel of John, chapter 20. An amazing chapter, one of the essentials of the Gospel, the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. My name is Brenton Powers. And I'm Dan Bodwin. He knew the crucifixion was coming, that he would be arrested and killed and buried, and that he would rise on the third day. He told the disciples, but they didn't quite understand it. So we see the shock in their responses. Yeah, we'll see them discover the fact of the resurrection and then also learn about the meaning of the resurrection. It really proves Jesus is who he says he is. Amen. Right out of our last lesson in chapter 19, look at the way we discussed the crucifixion. There's no way that he could have remained alive. He was truly dead. But in this chapter, we see him truly alive in his glorified body, but still bearing the scars from those nails. That's a powerful thing. So let's get into it. Let's start reading chapter 20. Just read through the whole chapter, and we'll go back through it verse by verse. Sounds good. So John chapter 20, starting with verse 1. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloths, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. Why don't you do one more, since I took one of yours. For as of yet, they did not understand the scriptures that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. But she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me. For I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad, and they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. But if you withhold forgiveness for any, it is withheld. Hmm. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands and the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. 
Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's John chapter 20. Love that last statement. Isn't that amazing? Yes. Yes. That's the purpose of the book, which we started this whole series by previewing that. We did. Now we finally got to it. But I love when the author of the biblical books tell us their purpose, because it really helps us to, at least that's how my brain works. I like to, I'm a missionary. So everything is kind of headed up by what is the purpose, and then underneath that, I make my outline according to that. So that's important, too. It, we, we want to understand what the Bible says about itself and its own purpose, just like any book, mm-hmm. you know? So if the purpose was that we may believe, then he lays out several signs that Jesus did uh, in order that we would know who he is, because those signs, those miracles are significant. They have a meaning, and it reveals who Jesus is. Hmm. For example, the first sign of turning water into wine in John chapter 2, yeah, yeah. or the sign of healing a blind man, and then he revealed himself as the light of the world. Hmm. All the miracles Jesus did, it wasn't just for miracles' sake. He had compassion on people, but... John is pointing out that these signs should lead us to faith in Jesus Christ. Yeah, he didn't come primarily for the miracles. He came to preach the gospel. He came to share the good news. He came to live a sinless life and to die on the cross for our sins and be raised from the dead, conquering our enemies of Satan, sin, death, and hell. Mm. And here it is. Christ is risen, and there are many eyewitnesses. Over 40 days, Forty days. he yeah. appeared a number of times. John only highlights a few of the appearances. Yeah, yeah. You'll have to read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and Acts for more. Yes, indeed. But these specific ones are written that you may believe. So, out of the gate, here's your application. <laughs> believe. There you go. Amen. You've read the historical eyewitness evidence, and there's no good reason to not believe historical witnesses who are willing to lay down their lives testifying that Jesus Christ is risen. Yeah, and that is a key point that you bring up there. These are not accounts that were written long after the fact. That claim is often made, Mm -hmm. but when you actually read it and you look into the evidence for it, these were the people that walked and talked with Jesus. They had seen these things. They were recording their eyewitness accounts, and all the Gospels fit into that. John and Matthew were the accounts of eyewitnesses who walked with Jesus. Um, Mark was likely the account of Peter, because Mark was a companion of Peter, and he wrote his account. And then, of course, Luke was a a researcher, a medical doctor who traveled with Paul and had access to all the disciples. Mm -hmm. So he even says, yes, I collected accounts from all of these sources. These were written down by the people who were there. They are trustworthy. And I think the most important miracle of all, the most important sign Mm. that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, is the resurrection itself. And The application here is that not only that you may believe, but that by believing, you may have life in his name. Amen. So Jesus has the authority over life and death. He can raise himself from the dead, as he predicted in John chapter 2. If you destroy this body, the temple, uh, I will raise it up in three days. Mm. And so if Jesus can give himself life from the dead, he can give us life from the dead and eternal life that begins now and lasts forever. Amen. Good stuff. Why don't we go ahead and start going through verse by verse, and there's a lot of interesting little tidbits that are mixed in there that we want to talk about. Great. So, verse 1, now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. And uh, got some notes here from the ESV Study Bible. There are other study Bibles, too. I like the ESV. And particularly if you're a young Christian or a new Christian, a study Bible can be really helpful in giving you some historical and cultural background so that some of these things that normally wouldn't make sense will make sense. What's the difference between a study Bible and just a regular Bible? That's a good question. A regular Bible is just the text with a few notes at the bottom um, on various things, language that is used. 
used, uh, manuscripts, things like that. But a study Bible is generally going to have, at the beginning of each book of the Bible, it's going to have an introduction that talks about who wrote it, when they wrote it, uh, what was going on with the world, with the nation of Israel, with the people involved, Mm -hmm. so you can kind of get a snapshot of the background. If there's any um, um, really uh, fundamental cultural differences, Mm -hmm. they'll mention those. And uh, then throughout the book, uh, if there's a section, kind of like what we did, this is kind of like... Some commentary. Yeah, yeah. it's, it's mm-hmm. almost like an audio study Bible is what we've done in some ways. It's, it's taking those passages that people wouldn't necessarily understand immediately and saying, okay, here is what it means and why. Hmm. And so a study Bible is a tremendous help. But I got this particular note from the ESV study Bible, although there's other good ones out there. Um, So the stone was rolled away. Well, why is that significant? Because scripture tells us that uh, one of the prophecies of Jesus is that he would be with a rich man in his death, buried you know, in a rich man's tomb. Mm -hmm. And so this tomb had a stone that had been rolled away. Now there's about a thousand tombs from that time period in that area that have been excavated. Very few of them have a rolling stone that went in front of the entrance. Mm-hmm. This is something that meant you had money. So there mm-hmm. is that is an, yet another indication that Jesus was buried with the rich, as prophecy said he would be. In Isaiah 53 is where you can find that prophecy, and many other great prophecies about oh, yeah. the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. Amen, amen. Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22 are, I think, probably the two best ones. And I've actually been to Israel and mm-hmm. Jerusalem. There are, it is true, there are a lot of empty graves, empty yeah, yeah. tombs. But the one that Jesus was buried in, it's notable that it says that it was hewn out of the rock, mm. which would have been an expensive and arduous process to to carve a grave, a tomb out of rock, and that doesn't fit the description of all of them. And there's a little channel. Uh, we think it's the the garden tomb, which you can go to Jerusalem today. And you see there's a channel right over the opening to the tomb where that big rock could have been rolled. Yeah. Um, so it's like probably round, but flattened somewhat yeah. so that it could roll down into that. Big and heavy would take multiple men to move it, though. Yeah, exactly. And so the empty tomb evidence today you can go and see. So verse two, so she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciples, the one whom Jesus loved, and this is the way um, the disciple John referred to himself regularly in this, I I think it's a sign of humility, Mm. you know, and not necessarily indicating that he was the one that Jesus loved the most. I don't think that he was implying that, but he was kind of part of Jesus' inner circle, and uh, the, the love of Jesus and his relationship with him was Pivotal in his life, so he chose to refer to himself in the third person in that way. He recognizes that Jesus loves him. Yes, and what an important point for us as disciples to absolutely to recognize absolutely. that Jesus loves us too, and he demonstrated yes. that there on the cross. But he was close with John and he Peter was. and James. Yes, those the inner circle. Yeah, those were all the th- also the three that um, we see on the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus was glorified. So yeah, there was something special there. We skipped over something in verse one. It's notable the yeah. timing, the the day of the week. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And what kind of applications the church has drawn from that in history? Mm-hmm. Uh, the first day of the week, which would be Sunday. Correct. And so. You can read in the book of Acts how Paul gathered with the church uh, one Sunday from morning until evening, and someone fell asleep. It was such a long service. (laughs) Fell asleep and fell out the window. Yeah, and died, and Paul went and raised him from the dead and preached some more. There you go. But there's precedent for Christians celebrating this day, the first day of the week, and some may ask, well, did we change the Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday? Is Sunday the Sabbath now? Um, in one sense, yes. I would say it's a tricky question. It is a tricky question. I'd like to hear how you would answer that question, because there's Seventh-day Adventists Mm -hmm. that believe that they should keep the Sabbath on Saturday, Friday sunset to Saturday sunset. I think there is honestly some freedom in this area, biblically. Mm -hmm. There's one passage, and I, I could look it up, I don't remember the address off the top of my head, where Paul is talking about this, where he says, you know, some people respect one day as greater, and then some treat all as the same. 
same. Some people, you know, will eat just vegetables. Some people will eat meat. Each one should be fully convinced in their own mind. Um, so there are some of those areas where there is there is freedom for disagreement in Christ. However, I, I think the point here is we need to make sure that we are setting aside time to worship God mm-hmm. the way that he has called us to. We have precedent in scripture for the disciples meeting on that first day of the week in remembrance of Jesus' resurrection. So that is why Christians, most Christians currently yeah. celebrate on Sunday, and, and I do. Yeah, well, I, I don't necessarily call going to church keeping the Sabbath. Like, no, the that's Sabbath, true. There's uh, more to it than my, that. Here's my answer, and there's mm-hmm. probably a million different ways to answer this question, but my answer is that... Sabbath is still the Sabbath for the Jews. That's a perpetual yeah. like command in the Old Testament to differentiate them from other nations. And so if someone is Jewish or Seventh-day Adventist and they, in their conscience, wants to celebrate that day mm-hmm. um, and they want to do it in a way where they're resting and going to church, then that's in their conscience, that's fine. For me, in my conscience, I believe Christ is the fulfillment of that Sabbath law. And so while it's called today, every day, you can call it your day of resting in Jesus. Mm -hmm. Now there's a spiritual rest we enter into when we put our trust in Jesus. He did the work of salvation there at the cross. He said it is finished. So when we put our trust in Christ, we're entering into that spiritual rest from our labors. You know, I used to labor to try and earn my salvation. It didn't work. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you can't be saved by good works. You're saved by grace. And so faith is accessing that Sabbath day rest that remains for the people of God Amen. any day. Yeah, absolutely. And then physically, I think it, the Sabbath is important to take a day of rest. Don't work the same kind of job seven days in a row or 10 days in a row. I've done that and you get burnt out. You do. God gave us that pattern for a reason. Sabbath is for man, Jesus said. Yeah, he did say that. And I think the issue of conscience is really important too, because, you know, number one, we need to search the scriptures to make sure that we are following God's word to the best of our ability. We'll always get some things wrong. We're not perfect. That's just Mm -hmm. part of the human experience. However, if in your conscience, you are convinced that you need to worship on Saturday, yes, you should go search the scriptures to make sure you're right. But if that w- that is where your conscience is leading you, then you need to worship on Saturday. Mm-hmm. Because to go against, to willfully rebel against what your conscience tells you is correct yeah. is rebellion against God and is sin in itself, even if the act isn't sinful. Yeah. You know, so that's important. Conscience you know, you don't. You never want to be in willful rebellion against God's will. Which you can read. This is one of those gray areas. Christians can yeah, agree yeah. to disagree, but follow your conscience. You read in Romans chapter fourteen. Yeah, yeah. It talks about not judging one another in regards to what you eat, or also days. But also in Colossians chapter two, verse sixteen to twenty-three. Let no man judge you in meat or in drink or in respect to a holiday or in any new moon or Sabbath, Sabbath days. Yes. Um, so. It's it's a matter of personal conviction how you do it, mm-hmm. but what if someone says, well, then we don't need to go to church at all? Uh, is there a biblical command to remain in the habit of going to church? There weekly? is, there is absolutely. It says, do not neglect the gathering together. You know, we need that church and that church experience, and and of course, it also talks about those that are in leadership by God's calling, who are, we are to be subject to pastors and teachers and things like yep. that. So so there, there's two things here. There's the conscience thing, and there is the necessity and the command to search the scriptures to make sure that you're not incorrect right. on those you know ideas of conscience. So I would give Hebrews 10.25 if you're out there and you're not attending a church on a regular basis. It says, and do not neglect our meeting together as some people do. Yes. But encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. Amen. Amen. So Jesus got up early Sunday morning from a <laughs> from a dead uh, corpse. We can get up out of bed yeah, Sunday yeah. morning and go to church, the church of the living God. It's Absolutely. the family of God. Absolutely. All right. That's all from verse one, friends. Yeah. And we're, uh, how much time have we el- have elapsed here? 23 minutes. 
Okay, we'll be here six more hours. (laughs) (laughs) I hope not. So let's go to verse two. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, We have taken, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. There's a little that that we thing you heard my emphasis on here, and I want to just throw an idea out there, and we might talk about it a little bit more through. One of the claims that we hear about the Gospels frequently from a number of different people, particularly atheists and I would say Muslims frequently, is that the Gospels cannot be trusted because they contradict each other. And I would say, no, they don't contradict each other. This point comes up because only Mary Magdalene is mentioned here, but other accounts mention multiple women. Only she's named here. Only she is named. It does say we. But it does say we, exactly. Mm -hmm. So that's an indication that there were more than one person there, but only she is mentioned. So if you have heard this claim or maybe made this claim... um, Stop. Try to be, yes. <laughs> yeah. Be fair with the text. The fact that you know, we, you've got four eyewitness accounts that don't contradict each other but give different levels of detail. If you have any four people seeing the same event, that's always going to be the case. I mean, one of the I, I could go into so much detail. I'm not yeah. going to. We've got too much he's, stuff to cover. He's a security guy, so he <laughs> knows a lot about eyewitness accounts. Yeah, there is a good uh, good book um, by a guy named Jay Warner Wallace, who is a retired cold case murder detective, and he goes into this in detail because eyewitness accounts is what he does. So I would encourage you guys to check out his stuff in his ministry. Same thing with Lee Strobel. Lee Strobel, uh, yeah. His book, Case for Christ, they turned that into a movie. Mm-hmm. As a journalist, investigative journalist, he looked into this claim of the resurrection and realized that you know if he's trying to debunk Christianity, which he was initially— He was, yeah. He realized that if he can debunk the resurrection, then it's a house of cards. Christianity would collapse because even the Bible says, if Christ is not risen, then we believers are of most people to be pitied. Amen. She yeah. feels sorry for us if the resurrection isn't true. Yeah. But we rejoice because it is because true. Because it is true. That's, Don't that's feel sorry for us. the greatest evidence. <laughs> and, uh, you know, otherwise you have to explain how hundreds of people said they were eyewitnesses of the body of Jesus risen from the grave and talked with him and touched him and were willing to die for that testimony if they knew it was a lie. What would they have to gain? It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. Well, lots of people die for a lie, but they don't die for something they know to be a lie. But speaking of the eyewitness testimony of Mary, mm-hmm. like it does mention that she is also the Mary Magdalene, Mary of Magdala, and that she was the one that had seven demons mm-hmm. in her, and Jesus delivered her. So again, just emphasizing that the people that came to the tomb were those who Jesus had changed their lives. Yes, amen. And that's a great thing when you can have a checkered, dark, demonic past, but Jesus can set you free, as uh, the resurrection shows. He can set you free from death. Mary Magdalene shows he can set you free from demons. Amen. So yeah, good stuff. We see here that Mary was there. She knew that Jesus' body was gone, but she still hadn't processed the fact that, you know, he was had actually told everybody, told his disciples he was going to rise on the third day. She's still wondering, where did they move the body to? So she went and she told Simon and she told John. So I have to point out, yeah. sorry, something here Go ahead. before we talk about Peter and John. God not only used her to be the first person at the tomb, Mm -hmm. but also to go and testify. She was the first witness of the resurrection to other people. And it's notable that she's a woman, right? God can use women as witnesses to testify to the gospel. Particularly in that culture, that was significant because women weren't even allowed to testify or or what was it? Their testimony was... Yeah, couldn't testify in court or like their testimony was of half the value of a man or something along those lines. They were marginalized in that community. Typically, if you were making up a story and you wanted to give credibility to the story you made up, you would not put a woman as the first uh, witness because in that culture, it wouldn't be real smooth. It wouldn't go real good. Then why did they do it? Because that's how it happened. Because that's how it happened. That's the order. That's the actual truth. Yeah. Yeah, it's a powerful thing. Thank you for that, Brian. So if you're a woman out there, go tell people Christ is risen. Amen. 
In verse 3, Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. So they were running together. The other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first and stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and he went into the tomb and saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw, and he believed. So people are going to ask about Mm -hmm. this linen cloth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You think it's the Shroud of Turin? I have my doubts. I, I, I've heard a lot of argument on both sides about, you know, is it really what it described? It wasn't wrapping his head. It was like going across his body. That doesn't seem to be what the Bible says. You know, um, you know, people will say, you know, he was glorified and that's what burned his image into the cloth and stuff like that. I, I don't know. I, I don't know. Um, f- frankly, it's, it, it doesn't matter. I mean, it, I guess for some people it can be helpful in and encouraging, um, but I'm I'm not convinced. Yeah, I'm I'm not convinced. Yeah, I'm I'm skeptical about such claims because I don't yeah. think so. If it was preserved, are we saying that the disciples saw Jesus physically, and then when after he ascended to heaven, they held on to this cloth and yeah. saved it somewhere for later? They didn't write about it, but yeah, that... that the cloth was uh, his imprint was burned into it. It's just yeah. it's it's just lying there. Frankly, I think there's a reason why a lot of these holy objects that we see in the Bible have disappeared, and I think it was because God didn't want them to be turned into an object of worship. Mm -hmm. And if you know anything about medieval Catholicism, there was a huge amount of that thing going on. You know, hey, this is a a piece of Jesus cloth, or or Jesus cross, cross. rather, or a bone from John the Baptist, or a vial of breast milk from Mary. I'm not joking. (laughs) This is one of those things that they've put out there. And True. there were enough scraps of wood to build about 500 crosses, yeah. you know, get scattered around, and they become they become idolatrous, yeah, you know. And so I I kind of doubt it. I kind of doubt it. I think it's probably another one of those items that was maybe made as an encouragement, you know, to bring people to Christ. But I'm I'm not convinced. In yeah. fact, I think it's it's been counterproductive. It can be a superstition to it can look be. to that and think, okay, that's exactly what Jesus looks like. Yeah, yeah. And then people turn that into an idol. Yeah, we don't want to do that. Okay, so anything else in this passage? About- yeah, there's some little stuff. So, But there are some interesting things just in, in once again, giving the background. What did a tomb during that time look like? You know, we've often seen, or I have, in pictures of the empty tomb. You have kind of a slab of stone there with the cloths across it and the open tomb in the background. And there's some some truth to how that was laid out. The way that they would often take care of bodies in that time frame, and archaeology has demonstrated this. You have a slab of stone. You have a body, in this case, that was um, was wrapped up in cloths and about 75 pounds of spices. You take that um, body, you put it on the slab over time after the tomb has been closed, the body's going to slowly decompose. Then once it, most of the, the flesh is gone, they're going to go in there, they're going to gather the bones, they're going to put them into what's called an ossuary or a hmm. bone box and put that in a niche in the wall. Um, so obviously that wouldn't have happened over three days. Um, what would have likely been is this semi-mummified body wrapped in sticky spices, you know, potentially a huge mess. Mm -hmm. This is not like you could just go in there and pick up the body and take off the cloths and move it somewhere else and leave the cloths where they were. Um, It's not something that a grave robber who had gone in there would have tried to, they certainly wouldn't take the time to fold the face cloth neatly and put it there. Um, There's a lot of indications here that this is something unusual, and I would argue argue even supernatural, that happened. Mm. You know, it's it's just a really a really odd thing, and I'm I'm sure that's part of what shocked Mary and Peter and John when they looked in there. It's like this is weird. Mm-hmm. You can't just take a body like this. You got this big stone they couldn't have rolled away easily, and now the body's gone. What's happening here? So it would have been a confusing and kind of wild thing, you know. Mm-hmm. Now Peter and John, there's a kind of looks like a foot race mm-hmm. going on here. <laughs> what are we to make too. of that? 
I don't know. I, I've I've seen some people argue that John put that in there just to show, hey, I was the young guy and I beat Peter at something. I, I don't know if that's the case, but it could be. It could be. Yeah. David Guzik, the commentator, says that uh, John was humble enough to not name himself as the disciple that Jesus loved, yeah. but he was proud enough to say that he got to the tomb first before yeah, Peter. Yeah, yeah. Likely, John uh, was younger than Peter. Um, and maybe that's why he got there sooner. But though he got there sooner, he didn't go in. Why yeah. didn't? Why did John not go in, and Peter did? I think there's some some deference to the you know the kind of senior apostle, some uh, maybe some respect for for his elders, which would be very much cultural. Maybe he was just nervous and scared. You know, we don't know for sure. He we can speculate. Had, he, there was also the uh, being ceremonially unclean. That's if you're true. In the presence yeah. of a corpse. Yeah. In a grave, you would have to be in the Jewish culture ceremonially clean. He had a he had relatives in the priestly family. Hmm. Yeah, that's that true. Had anything to do with it? It's speculation, but yeah, yeah. Um, perhaps he was fearing that defilement. Yeah. Or just maybe he didn't need to go in, but Peter was the more brash guy who's going to go in and <laughs> wants to see for himself. Yeah, Peter was kind of a leap before you look kind of a guy, so and speak before you think. So that's that's more along the lines of his personality. So he reached the term the tomb. He uh he looked in but didn't enter and then Peter did. And uh, he eventually um, looked in, and it says that he he saw and he believed. Now, mm-hmm. what exactly did he believe? He he knew something special had happened. He knew that Jesus was gone. Um, but it also goes on to say in verse nine, for they for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. And the disciples went back to their homes. That that's an interesting thing I hadn't noticed before. Um, it was Jesus that told them, they're going to arrest me and kill me and bury me and ri- I'm going to rise again on the third day. And what does he refer to it here? Scripture. The words of Jesus are scripture. You know, I, he may be referring well, to other I'm not points. sure if I would take it that way. I don't know. Because there were Old Testament scriptures that That's true. prophesied that, you know, Isaiah 53, for example, mm-hmm. that though he will be crushed and he will be, you know, crucified, he'll be pierced for our iniquities, mm-hmm. the Lord will prolong his days. That's true. You would have seen it from from the Old yeah. Testament scripture and then clarified in the words yeah. of Jesus. I, for me, this is an exciting passage it about is. that, you know, the, the resurrection of Jesus was according to the scriptures, it says mm. in 1 Corinthians 15. Amen. Um, surely Jesus' teaching did become scripture, mm-hmm. but as yet, they, they didn't have the New Testament written. So they didn't understand the Old Testament scriptures, how I understand what he's saying there. That makes sense. That makes sense. And it's important to see Jesus in the Old Testament. It's a passion of mine to not read the Old Testament as if it's irrelevant, uh, but the New Testament is in the Old, concealed, and the Old Testament is in the New, revealed. That's right. And it's all centered around Jesus. So he'll, he'll, in the book of uh, Luke, chapter 24, Jesus opens their mind to understand the Scripture, and he reveals to them everything that was written about himself from Moses' writings to the prophets and to the Psalms. And so if you want to do a deep dive after finishing John, (laughs) uh, I have a series going through the Old Testament looking at Jesus in every book. So that will be available at uh, Dwell on Truth this year. I'll be... um, putting those links out there. Or you can go to archive.org and search for Brenton Powers and Jesus in the Old Testament series. It's it's already uploaded there. Very cool. Very cool. So going on to verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting there where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And uh, the the ESV Study Bible just notes in passing that all, angels often appeared in pairs, and they are often depicted as clad in white. And this mm-hmm. is another one of those situations where you know uh, um, the Bible gives different details in different gospels. Some gospel accounts only mention one angel; some mention two. It's always just one that's speaking. Hmm. They said to her, "Woman, why are you weeping?" She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. 
So we talked a little bit about what that uh, burial would have looked like and the prepare, the preparation of the body and such. And as we read these kind of narratives, you, you kind of want to feel what the people are feeling mm-hmm. in that experience. She's weeping. It's mm-hmm. not just a factual thing happening. She's still grieving and still hasn't registered yeah. that Jesus has risen. She's thinking someone stole his body yeah. or took it somewhere for some strange reason. She's not really thinking logically, but no. emotionally... You can imagine um, that she came there to see if she can finish embalming him. That process was rushed. She came there to grieve. You know, where is the body of Jesus? That's that. That's a moving question. She wanted to find the answer to. Yeah, it's a big one. Yeah. So, yeah, put yourself in the shoes of those who were there, and we have the benefit of hindsight. We know we he's risen from the grave. That's a well-established thing in the Christian Church, but. Uh, I think it leads to the lends to the credibility of the the gospel writers that they would would show that they weren't expecting this. They weren't plotting to uh, you know fulfill Jesus's words. They just kind of as if someone dies today, do you expect them to rise from the grave in three days? No, this is a, a normal reaction. Someone's grieving. And so that leads to the surprise and the the joy of when Jesus does appear, that she just wants to cling on to him. Yeah, yeah. And it says uh, the implication here, she was probably clinging to his feet. That is the account that we see in Matthew 28, 9. So Mm -hmm. same account, little different detail. Um, but it says, we'll go back to verse 14. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said, we're woman. Why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. So it's it's interesting that Jesus is standing there and she doesn't even recognize him. Mm-hmm. I think there's a, a number of reasons we could... Uh, we could, once again, there is some speculation yeah. here, but she was upset, not expecting the resurrection, distraught with grief. Tears in her eyes, yes. maybe blurry vision, maybe Jesus uh, looked marred still, uh, yeah, yeah. so it wasn't recognizable as the same person. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, also, the resurrection body is uh, it has a different glory than the pre-resurrection body. Mm-hmm. A lot of reasons probably why she didn't recognize him until... He spoke her name. Yep. Yeah. One word. That's all it took. Mary. And she turned and saw him and said in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. He recognized her when that name was spoken. Yeah. Special, special relationship. Now, sometimes we got to deal with this question because skeptics will raise it. The Da Vinci Code says that <laughs> Jesus and Mary had a romantic relationship. Is there any historical validity to that? No, there really isn't. Um, from Just from memory, I've studied this a little bit, there are some secondary sources, some uh, Gnostic Gospels, which were uh, false Gospels about Jesus written long after yeah. he was raised. So the, the Gospels that we have here... Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the four that we know, and and even skeptical scholars generally will say these are the four we actually have from the first century, right. which means these are the only four they came from eyewitness accounts. Mm-hmm. There are others that are second and third and afterwards centuries mm-hmm. um, that were written by other people after the fact that hadn't been around Jesus, clearly with other theological motives, yeah. because the four Gospels, they fit. They fit theologically, they fit historically, but there were other groups that came in that wanted to twist the idea of Jesus, and you can see that in those later writings. So the idea that they had a romantic relationship is a late invention. It's a late invention. It's a fabrication. And is there even anything in like, say, the Jehovah's Witnesses or or Mormons uh, cults where, like, probably Mormons, do they have anything about Jesus having a wife? 
Um, yes. Or wives? The, the Mormons would say he had multiple wives, and I think Mary Mag... And yes, I know Mary Magdalene was one of them. <laughs> um, your average Mormon that you talk to on the street isn't going to bring that up. Uh-huh. Um, but if you go back into their theology and the writings of their, their earlier uh, prophets, then yeah, it is in there. It is in there. False prophets. Obviously. Yes, exactly. And, and part of that is Mormon theology, where marriage is part of the way that you progress to the highest level of go- glory, yeah. so you can be God of your own family. He had to be married, but okay. even for them, it's it's just it's not in the scriptures. Yeah. It, it's not there. Stick to the word. They Stick had a special relationship. She they was did. one of his disciples, mm, close friend. But yeah. Jesus was not married to any human being. Correct. Uh, the Bible does say in Ephesians that Christ is the head of the church, like a husband is the head of a wife, and that mystery of the bride of Christ being the body of Christ, the, the church that collectively, mm-hmm. and we're still waiting for that day where we'll be united with him in heaven as corporately as a, as a group. Yes. Um, that's our wedding feast of the Lamb. So yes. That's, yes. that's the only sense in which Jesus is a husband. Correct. And uh, that's to the to the body of Christians. Amen. Amen. But in his earthly ministry, he stayed single. Yes. So, verse 17, Jesus said to her, do not cling to me. Once again, he was probably clinging. She was probably clinging to his feet. Matthew 28, 9 says that. For I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father and to my God and your God. And then verse 18, Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. We've talked a lot about the Trinity uh, in the Gospel of John, because it's clear John teaches that Jesus is God, and he is the Son of God. And that's a mystery, how we can be with God and be God. Mm -hmm. Uh, But people who struggle with the Trinity may struggle also with this verse, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Who was Jesus' God if he was God? Well, as a human being, God the Father would have been the one that he prayed to, and we see that laid out in the scriptures. I do find it interesting. I hear this a lot from from Muslims. In mm-hmm. fact, I've heard just in the last couple of days some of my online discussions on, on some uh, Christian Islamic discussion boards. Um, but it's interesting. He didn't say, our Father and our God. He said, my Father and your Father, my God and your God. He's making a distinction there because God is our Father, but our relationship with God as Father is something very different than Jesus' relationship with God as Father. We could compare and contrast. Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. We're born again as children of God, and we receive uh, the title of sonship through adoption. We yes. we are co-heirs with Christ. Mm-hmm. So that in that sense, if you're a Christian, you are a child of God, but not in the same sense that Jesus is. Yes, exactly. And the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. And when we talk about Father and Son, we're really talking about a closeness of relationship, mm-hmm. not birth through sexual regeneration. It's yeah. it's not that. It's a it's a closeness of relationship. So and. Existed forever. Yeah. Yeah. And it's important to know that um, we'll never be part of the Trinity. Like, no, just because no, no, Jesus no. Praised, prayed, uh, you know, that they may be one even as we are one, that's, yeah. it's, it's, there's a distinction there. There is. There is. I mean, there is, there is in some sense a divine aspect there. It does say in scripture that we will rule and reign with Christ. Mm-hmm. And spiritually, at least, we as as humans are eternal beings, and uh, and we will be glorified, you know, in the next world. But yeah, the the Trinity is something that has ex- always existed and always will yeah. exist. It's completely unique. Um, God, the Godhead, is completely unique, and we will never be part of that. Yeah. But I think. It- uh, on a lot of levels, we need to recognize what is in common. You know, mm-hmm. Jesus is saying, my father is now your father. Yes. My God is your God. When you trust in Christ, then he makes you a child of God, and you can call God your father. In fact, Romans 8 says the spirit of adoption has been given to us by which we cry out, Abba, Father, which is the Hebrew word for daddy. Yeah. So we can call him father, and that's a... Uh, it's a New Testament uh, revelation Jesus yeah. is giving. We and we can know him as father through the son. 
You know, we we see that in in John, right? In chapter one, you know, no one has ever seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's side has made him Mm -hmm. known. And we see that in the Old Testament too. Mm -hmm. We see the glory of the Father and the Son that has made him known. And of course, came and took on human flesh Mm -hmm. and died so that we could be forgiven. What an amazing thing to think about. Died and rose again. Rose again. In this chapter. Amen. Amen. Okay. So we are at uh, 50 minutes. We're going to try and wrap up the chapter a little quicker than the, the first half of this chapter that we read. <laughs> yes. So what's next? We got... Um, verse 19. Verse 19. Verse 19. So on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews... Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And, uh, well, we can probably start. I don't want to go too far and get yeah, lost there's... in the details. There's a lot there. Yeah. Well, Let's start with verse 19, that Jesus' glorified body. What kind of body was, was this? We don't know completely. We know that it was a physical human body. We know that he still carried the scars. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Too. I just think to you know, when we get our glorified bodies, mm-hmm. you know, it, the indications are from Scripture that they'll be perfect. You know that he will, you know, disease and sickness and infirmity will be gone, and we'll have a perfect body. But Jesus, in his glorified perfect body, is still bearing those scars. Mm-hmm. That's powerful. What's also powerful in this verse is that it seems like he entered a locked room. He did without using the door. Without using the door. Did he, <laughs> uh, you know, teleport? Can this? Can this resurrection body? It's physical. He's able to eat. They're able to touch him. But he's also able to, I don't know, what's a superpower for go- going through walls? Oh, I don't know. Or just, you know. you know, the locks didn't hold for him or something. There was something supernatural going on right. there. That's an amazing thing. And it's well, not the only time he does that. It makes me speculate, will we be able to teleport or will we walk be able to walls? walk through yeah. walls? Or maybe he was already in there, just invisible, and then he appeared. Yeah, uh, I think there's something about the this. If you look at all of the appearances of Christ, it, it's there's on the road to Emmaus when they finally realized it's Jesus. He, I don't know if it uses this word, but it seems like he disappeared. Yeah, from from their midst, and then they're like, "Didn't his words burn in our hearts?" So there's definitely a different type of glorified body that Jesus has that we will have a similar body in our resurrection. Yeah, it makes me think about, you know, when we talk about God being spirit and by his nature being everywhere. Of course, some of the the Buddhists and Hindus will get that confused and think that he's one with everything. And that's not true. There's a creation-creator distinction. But God is imminent. He is present in a in a sense, able to have influence and power at any point in all of reality. Mm-hmm. You know, and if he's that by nature, how easy is it for him to move his body from one place to another? Yeah. You know? I mean the physical part of his body he created. So either way, some unusual happenings. <laughs> some unusual here. stuff's going on uh-huh. here. And the, the disciples were shocked. and But it, it is, you know, I already mentioned it, but it is significant that one of the first things he did was, hey, here are my hands, here's my side, take a look for yourself. Because we have a group like our friends, the Jehovah's Witnesses, who will say he was raised spiritually, not physically, and try to, you know, do all kinds of uh, um, gymnastics to get around the fact that He's making it yeah. clear that he's there in his physical body. At another point, he, he eats something mm-hmm. to show, hey, I can eat too. Yeah. So this is a real physical body that was really resurrected. Yeah, you can call it scientific evidence because yeah. it, it uses the five senses and it was repeatable and testable. And mm-hmm. um, Now, at from our vantage point, now it's historical evidence because of these eyewitnesses. He doesn't need to keep proving himself physically, bodily on this earth to every single person, 
Um, he did appear to Paul. Uh, he did after his ascension, but uh, that was kind of he says as one untimely born he appeared to mm. him. So we shouldn't expect that Jesus keeps appearing. Uh, but during these forty days, he did many. Uh, in I like how it's it's phrased in Acts chapter one. Mm-hmm. He gave them many infallible proofs. Yeah, yeah, proofs that could not be falsified. It was clear. So down to, I think we're in verse 22. Well, he said in 21, he said, peace be with you as the Father has sent me, so I, even so I am sending you. So he's sending his disciples out. I would call this the Great Commission in John's Gospel. Yes. In Matthew, we have the commission stated in this way, go make disciples of all nations. Yeah, yeah. Uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I'll be with you, you know, teaching them to comm- teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. That's Matthew's discipleship gospel, mm-hmm. uh, discipleship commission. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mark gives more an evangelistic commission mm-hmm. in chapter 16, verse 15, go preach the gospel uh, to every creature, every person, every individual, and whoever believes will be saved. Whoever doesn't will be condemned. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the Great Commission according to Mark. Here is the Great Commission according to John. As the Father sent me, so I send you. Mm. And where we get our word mission from in English is from the Latin translation of sent, mm. missio. Missio. So if you study uh, missiology, like uh, as a missionary for many years, uh, you know, you can, every different angle you can look at the mission of God at is helpful for knowing what are we called to do? What's our purpose here? Yes, yes. Well, as the Father sent Jesus incarnationally to live among people, to minister to people, to give glory to God, he calls us to do the same things. Live for the glory of God, preach the same gospel that Jesus preached, and the, and we learn from the apostles the way that they obeyed this command to, as they're sent, we can follow their example too. He's sending yes. all believers out into the world to share the good news. He's alive. Amen. And he saves. Amen. So believe it, and then go tell others who need to hear. Amen to that. And I think this next verse, we talked about this previously. He went, and when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive in the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. And I think we had agreed on this before that I, I believe this is probably the moment of salvation for the disciples when Jesus grants them the, the, the Holy Spirit, where they are filled with the Spirit. And there are differences in the way that the Holy Spirit works, but I think that that was that moment of salvation. I would phrase it slightly different. Yeah, they yeah. weren't yet filled until Correct. Pentecost. Correct. Acts chapter 2 says that. Um, but in some other sense, they received the indwelling of the Holy Correct. Spirit. And yeah, by salvation, if you mean regeneration, I think that this yes. is the point where they were born again of the Holy Spirit. And it's interesting that Peter, you know, being one of the people that experienced this, mm-hmm. received the Holy Spirit. Um, he says in his one of his letters that you've been born again according to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes. So there's a connection between Jesus rising from the grave and his disciples being born again, that the disciples didn't have that experience before the resurrection. Correct, yeah. There's the uh, the indwelling, and then there is the filling, and the indwelling is that moment of salvation, and the filling is God's empowerment for specific works of service mm-hmm. at particular times. Yeah, and I could develop this teaching, yes. but it, we don't have time to get all into the you know indwelling versus filling and the yeah. baptism of the Holy Spirit, but... Yeah. Suffice to say that if Jesus says receive something, yeah, then gonna, you received you're it gonna receive in that it, yeah. moment. <laughs> and so that's their experience of receiving, I believe, the indwelling person of the Holy Spirit, just as the same Jesus did his ministry by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now they're they're going to do the same. Amen. And so, yeah, I don't have time to develop this teaching, but if a resource I would say is a great one that impacted my life in helping to understand who the Holy Spirit is and the work of the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit is a book by Chuck Smith called uh, Living Water. Mm. Very good resource for anyone who wants to know more about the different uh, experiences you can have with the Holy Spirit. Mm. I'll have to check that out. Cool. I've not read that yet. So going on verse 23, this is a, this is a challenging one. 
Um, it says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. And this is uh, challenging, particularly because of uh, the beliefs of some of our Roman Catholic friends, that the it is through the church by necessity that salvation comes. That's what they say. That's what you're they not say. saying. That I am not saying yeah. that. Okay. Um, and there were some some notes here once again in the uh, in the ESV Study Bible that I think are important. I'll just read this really quickly. Mm-hmm. The expression "they are forgiven" and it is withheld. Both represent perfect tense verbs in grief in Greek, and could also be translated "they have been forgiven" and it has been withheld, since the perfect gives the sense of completed past action with continuing results in the present. So the idea is not that the individual Christians or churches have authority on their own to forgive or not forgive people but rather that as the church proclaims the gospel message of forgiveness of sins in the power of the Holy Spirit, see verse 22, it proclaims that those who believe in Jesus have their sins forgiven and that those who do not believe in him do not have their sins forgiven, which simply reflects what God in heaven has already done. Mm-hmm. So that's that I think is really key past action with continuing results. They're proclaiming the gospel message. You accept the gospel message, your sins are forgiven. Mm-hmm. You don't accept the gospel message, your sins are not forgiven. They're proclaiming yeah. what Jesus had done, not having control over that themselves. Yeah, I liked how you phrased it right there. The Sometimes study Bibles are very scholarly, mm-hmm. but it's great when we could summarize that in a way that on the street level for a new believer or non-believer, that's our target audience here. Yeah, yeah. Um, ultimately, like this does this question does come up on the streets, but more in this way, and I think it's helpful to use the scripture in this way. Like people ask, how can you, no one can know whether they're saved or not. You can't tell someone whether they're saved or, or not saved. Only God can judge. That's correct. And he will judge. And he will. <laughs> he's told us how. And he's told us how. This is, <laughs> I hear Dan and say this all the time. I do. So, and this, you could actually use the scripture as a basis for saying, we do know how God is going to forgive. And if someone has repented of their sins and put their trust in Christ, and they're confessing that they're a sinner that is saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone, Yes. then with God, with the authority in of scripture, not our own authority, we can say in that case, you are forgiven and we can yes. in- encourage new believers that you have forgiveness of sins. And in the same way, if someone has heard the gospel, but they're rejecting it, they're not putting their trust in Christ, they're not willing to repent of their sin, mm-hmm. um, and they don't confess Jesus as being the Christ, the Son of God, then we can say with authority that they their sins are... They're still in their sins. They're still in their sins. Forgiveness is withheld until such a point as they are willing to repent and trust in Christ. Yes, amen, amen. So going on to verse, I think we're in verse 24 now. So Thomas, and and this is good. This is uh, um, really about belief and trust. Now Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands, the see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Mm. Now, I, I, I think some people really condemn Thomas because of this, but all things considered, it's not really an unreasonable desire. You know, he still was not expecting that Jesus would rise from the dead. He had the same doubts that the rest of the people did before they saw him. He's saying, what, you're telling me this already happened? I, I Man, I have trouble wrapping my brain around this. I'm going to have to see this for myself. Mm-hmm. You know, so, you know, even though I think in one way it, it shows a little bit of a lack of, of faith and trust in his, his friends and the teachings of Jesus, I get it. I get how he would struggle with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, at this point, he had heard from 10 other disciples yeah, that, that should have been they enough. had seen him, <laughs> he showed them their hands. No, more more like 11 or probably maybe 13, because the men and the women, you know, because oh, they had seen yeah. them too. Well, of, of the original 12, Judas yes. is dead, Thomas is one that had wasn't there when the other 10 All the other 10 there. disciples, yeah. So, yeah, I go back and forth. I, yeah, On one too. hand, I don't think we should continue to call him Doubting Thomas. Yeah, I, I agree. Because he became a believer. Yeah. And 
Jesus graciously gave him the evidence that he needed. Mm-hmm. Now there's a question of whether or not he actually did reach out and put his hand in the in, in the scars of Jesus or not. Maybe it was just sufficient, like that Jesus yeah. knew he had said that and invited him to do it. Yes, and it says that he saw him. It doesn't say that he actually reached out and touched him. It doesn't. But well, if, it, sorry, no, go ahead. I was just going to go to an application though like if Please. you're if you're the kind of person that is more skeptical and less trusting and I get that because that's what I was um I don't need to see the body of Jesus I do trust the eyewitnesses and I think that is sufficient but God is able to reveal himself to you and I don't think it's a sinful thing to pray God if you're there would you show me Jesus if you're risen if you're alive would you reveal yourself to me in a way that I c- can believe? Yeah, I agree. Um, as long as your motive isn't like, you know, to, to say, okay, you have to write my name in the clouds. It has to be on Thursday at one o'clock. And if, you know, <laughs> like let God decide and he is able to reveal himself to you in such a way that you can know him for certain. So let God decide what that is. Amen. And, uh, but here, sometimes he's gracious and gives us signs that we ask for. Mm-hmm. But be careful what you ask for. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So verse 26, eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them, although the doors were locked. Once again, Jesus, something supernatural is going on here. Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Mm. And as you said, it doesn't say that he touched him. It says, Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. And of course, this is also a clear statement of Jesus as God. Thomas understood the implications of this. And in a parallel passage in Luke, it says they worshipped him. That's right. So if Jesus was not God, he would not have accepted their worship or to be called... Thomas is God. And we see this in other places in the scripture where men or angels who are godly men and angels, mm-hmm. you know, people try to worship them. They say, oh, no, 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 not me. That's right. not that's not what I'm here for. You know, Paul, I think it was Paul and Barnabas did this. And uh, John and the Revelation. John and the Revelation. And uh, so, yeah. So... Thomas answered, my Lord and my God, Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That would be us. That would be us. There's a blessing to being able to believe, um, not based on our eyewitness testimony, but others, but also based on the scriptures, based on, you can still see the empty tomb as we talked about earlier. Um, But the you have a good point in your notes, just if I can steal your thunder, that faith is not contrary to evidence, but trust without immediate visible uh, evidence. We can we can trust uh, without seeing everything yet, but we will see one day. We will yeah. see Jesus one day. Amen. Amen. And just wrapping up, we go back to where we started. Well, we started, I think, today and what we started, oh my goodness, how many did... A year and a half ago, <laughs> a half two years ago, ago actually. Yeah, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. God has given us what we need. He has given us adequate evidence. He has given us um, that truth written in our hearts as well. So, um, there's there's so much more that we could say, but this is this is for us. This is for our sake, and this is for your sake if you're listening. Yeah. And 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 this whole journey that we've been on through the Gospel of John is about this passage. Yeah. That's what it's about, so that you may know. Yeah. And it's not just an intellectual ascent. Okay, Jesus is the Son of God. He's the Christ. He's risen. But to to receive Him mm-hmm. as He is. As the the only begotten Son of God who invites us to become children of God. When we receive him, we have the right to be called children of God. As the light who gives sight to the, the blind physically and spiritually. As the bread of life, as the good shepherd, all the I am statements in uh, John and all of the signs that he did points to what kind of God he is, what kind of uh, Savior he is. And so we want to embrace him 
fully for how he has revealed himself. Mm. And there's life in that. It's Jesus is the source of life. He is the light of men. Mm. And his he is the way, the truth, and the life. Mm. I love preaching that all the yes, time. It's because there's no other way to powerful. the Father, but since he is the life, he is the way to the Father. God has provided a way for us to come be reconciled to him, receive forgiveness of sins. And if you're listening to this today or watching it, and you have not yet received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you've not yet received forgiveness of your sins, you're convicted about your sins, you know you've lied or stolen or cheated or hated God and people, how can you be forgiven? Through the shed blood of Jesus and through the resurrection of Jesus, he restores that which the devil uh, meant for evil, what we've meant for evil, and he can work it all out for good. Amen. So trust in him, and you'll have life. Amen. And we hope that life for you. We wish that and pray that life for you. Yes. And uh, if you have any questions beyond what we've already covered, if you're not sure how exactly to put your trust in Jesus in this way so that you can be saved, please do reach out to us so we can help you with that. Let's talk. Let us help you. We really want to be able to do that. You can reach us at oacnorcal.org. That's our ministry site. You can reach us at dwellontruth.org. There's one more chapter left in the podcast, John 21. So go listen to that, and we'd love to hear your feedback. Thank you so much for joining us on this journey. We hope that you're blessed, and take heed to the Word of God. Amen. May God richly bless you as you continue to dwell on truth.